0: When I was a little child, I thought everyone in the world must love Christmas. I mean, come on, what's not to love about Christmas? People give gifts to one another, they make cookies for each other, there's um, gatherings where you, you, you eat like the best food all year long. And then, I mean crazy thing, people actually get groups of friends together and they go to one another's houses and they stand out front and sing songs to your house right? Or, or do that with strangers, people they don't even know. Like, what other, what other season in life can you actually do those sorts of things? So when I, as a kid, I thought Christmas, like, it's, it has to be the most wonderful time of the year. So I got a little older, I noticed that there was something good about Christmas, but there was something underneath. I started to notice in our family gatherings that we were all together, but I started to pick up on the fact that I'm pretty sure there's people in this room that I don't know if they like each other as much as I thought they did. I noticed that in talking about Christmas gifts, that it actually stressed some people out, like really stressed them out, worrying about it, fretting about it, and (laughs) in some cases get choked up about this, and in some cases, (laughs) in some cases it even, it made them sin in shopping for gifts, right? I just, how does that work? And then I remember Christmas times that a family member had passed away, and it was kind of sad. There was a empty spot around the table, and there was a couple Christmases where I just, I knew my grandma was just kind of sad. As I got older, I realized for all that Christmas is, and it's wonderful, celebratory holiday season, there's also something else that's underneath sometimes. We've experienced this personally, especially a number of years ago. We would set up the Christmas tree, put all the ornaments, the kids would put their ornaments up, and then we have a special ornament that's in memory of our daughter that passed away. We pull that ornament out put that on the tree and just like that the moment just shifted like there's all kinds of celebration and yet there's also something underneath there's pain there for many of you you know exactly what I'm talking about in fact that's part of your experience right now maybe even today in the midst of all of the Christmas carols, in the midst of all of the celebrations, in the midst of all of the festivities and the happiness and the merriment of this sort of season, there, there's a pain underneath. I was talking with one of our church members who's a widow this week, and I asked her how she was doing, and she said, Mark, I'm trusting the Lord, but I really miss my husband right now. Maybe this is a season where you've had thoughts like this Another Christmas, and I'm still single. Another Christmas, and we're not pregnant. Another Christmas, and I still hate my job. Another Christmas, and we're still broke. Another Christmas, and my son is still a mess. Another Christmas, and... But you just fill in the blank. You get the point. Part of the challenge of this year is that while there's a great deal of celebration, underneath our celebration, there's also... A significant amount of brokenness underneath. And I just want to tell you, that's the reason why this season is important. The brokenness that's underneath is the reason why Jesus came. The brokenness underneath is the reason why the incarnation of Jesus matters. That particular idea, why The Incarnation Matters, that's what we're dialing into during this Advent series, trying to help you think through. So you know the baby was born, you know that Jesus came, but why does that really matter? Last week we saw that the fact that Jesus was born matters in the sense that Jesus came into our world, he was born under the law, he comes in order to redeem us from our brokenness and our sinfulness. What we're going to do this week is we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus and to see how that relates not only to the birth of Jesus but also how that relates to the brokenness that we all feel. What I want to do is to try and expand your perspective of Christmas and help you understand that the birth of Jesus set in motion his ability to help you. Like right now, help you. In this service, to help you. He came in order to help you. We have a sympathetic savior who helps us endure all the way to the end by giving us confidence that he will help us. Or if you wanna know what this entire message about, it's these four words, Jesus can help me. No matter where you are, no matter What it is that's going on, no matter whether you're a believer or not, you need to know Jesus can help you and I hope that today, by the time I'm done, I hope he does. I hope he does. I wanna unpack Hebrews four. This precious passage, a great text. It identifies the beautiful help that Jesus offers in terms of the goal, the resource, and the hope. The goal, the resource, and the hope. Let's unpack these. First, the goal. The first truth that I wanna highlight here is what the writer of Hebrews is driving at and what is the ultimate goal, not only of this text, but what is the goal of the book of Hebrews? Why does he talk about the humanity of Jesus? Why does he talk about the temptation of Jesus? Why, why bring up such a, a loaded topic? The reason is that the writer of Hebrews wants you and me and the people to whom he's writing to endure. He wants them to be able to run and to cross the finish line. He wants them to be able to make it all the way to the end. And the humanity of Jesus is highlighted here in order to encourage a group of people who were facing difficulties in life, facing mounting persecution, and they needed to know, you can make it. You can run all the way to the end, you can cross the finish line, you can be faithful, you can hold on to Christ, you can hold on to your confession. You can do it, not because you're so awesome, but because Jesus can help you. He can come, he can help you today, because he already came so that he could help you. So this theme of endurance is all over the book of Hebrews. Let me just show you one place. Take your Bible, go to Hebrews 12. There's there's another one in Hebrews 6, but I just want to focus on Hebrews 12, because I think this one makes the point. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. If you've read the book of Hebrews, this is like the signature text within the entire book. It says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and notice this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and then here's why he says all this verse 3 consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted don't raise your hand but anybody here faint hearted or weary anybody discouraged Anybody weary, this, this passage, this entire book, the Bible is for you. The incarnation is for you. The idea of endurance is all throughout the New Testament. It's especially throughout the book of Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 4 and show you a couple of texts that are more closely located to our primary text. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. He says this, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So again, he wants you to realize what's before you is the promise of endurance, of entering into the rest of Christ, not only when you put your faith in him, but also when you die and you're in eternal glory forever. And what he wants them to do is to hold fast to that particular belief that they have. And then look at verse 11. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So Church, what's happening here is the writer of Hebrews is attempting to motivate these believers who are starting to face persecution at some level, and his aim is to help them hold on to what they believe as the pressures of life begin to mount, as temptations get stronger and stronger. So if you've had a really bad week, you're gonna be really glad you came to church today. I promise you, because this text is for you. Now, to make that point about endurance, the writer reminds his readers who Jesus is and what he has done. Verse 14 says four things about Jesus. So it describes him by name, calls him the son of God, identifies him as the great high priest, and as having passed through the heavens. Let me unpack a few of these. First, high priest. By saying that Jesus is a great high priest, verse 14, since then we have such since then we have a great high priest, by saying this high priest, what he's doing is linking who Jesus is to the Old Testament where the high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, he would bring in the, the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. It, it was the, the most significant moment of redemption for the people of Israel all year long. And the writer is saying that in the same way that the Old Testament priests did that, and going into the Holy of Holies in the temple, so too Jesus has done that. But the difference, if you would read on in Hebrews, is that Jesus didn't just bring blood had sprinkled it on the altar, Jesus became the sacrifice and it was his own blood that brought us into the mercy seat of God. The writer says that Jesus is this great high priest but he hasn't just passed into the holy of holies, no, he's actually passed into the heavens. In the same way as that a high priest would go into the holy place and disappear, so Christ has now ascended and has also disappeared. Now that creates a little bit of a challenge, because part of the message of endurance that we're going to hear is that Jesus can help you, but the problem is, is that Jesus isn't here anymore. He's gone. And so while it's spiritually meaningful that he was our great high priest, it requires some additional explanation as to why having a high priest like him is significant. Now hold that thought and look at the end of verse 14, where it says this, Let us hold fast our confession. That's what this entire paragraph is about, holding fast our confession. Now we don't use the word confession usually in our present day vernacular like it's used here. We think of confession, like I've done something wrong, so I'm gonna admit it, so I confess. I say exactly what happened, I, I speak the truth about it. It's the same root word, instead of it being a verb, in this case it's a noun, And here, though, it's used not for the confession of sin, but rather the confession of what you believe. So you can think of it not like confession, but like profession. Like, this is what I believe. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul uses the same word this way. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So so confession in that respect is the same idea of what it means to believe and to identify that you believe. So what the writer of Hebrews is driving at here is that he wants to be sure that these believers are strengthened in their faith so that when difficulty comes their way or hardship begins to be leveled upon them or some sort of persecution begins to loom, that they could endure hardship and difficulty. He's pastorally concerned that the pressures of life not put them in a position where they, because of the pressure, throw their hands up and say, I'm done, I'm out of here, I don't believe this anymore. If you're gonna treat me like this, this is what's gonna to happen to me, this is what I have my family, if you're good and you could stop this and you haven't, well I'm done, I don't believe in you anymore, I'm walking away, that is what he is laboring to prevent. Or temporarily that somebody says, this looks looks really tempting to me, this would really satisfy my soul. So I know you told me this is wrong, and I know that you told me that I should stay out of this, and I know that your glory is bigger than the glory that I receive here, but just for a few minutes or a few days or a few years, I want to dabble in this because I'm, I'm done with your glory, I want my own. And so the writer of Hebrews is leaning into this reality of what it means to live in a broken world filled with temptations, filled with trials, filled with difficulties, and he wants to speak into the heart of a person who would have fearful thoughts run through their head or through their soul. Questions like this, or statements like this, I I don't think I can take this anymore, or If I have to live like this for another year, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or, this temptation is so strong, I can't imagine fighting it much longer. Or, I'm so scared of all the emotions running through my soul right now, I don't trust my ability to make it through this. Or, I've never felt this level of testing before, I cannot imagine what will happen if this gets worse. Now, can I tell you something about all those things that I just said? Every single one of those, I've said. Every one of them. And my guess is so of you. When a fleeting thought, when a scary emotion, when unbelief begins to well up in your soul, where do you go with that? What the writer of Hebrews wants to do is to help you endure for the long term. You see, one of the scariest things about facing hardships or temptations or persecution are these very questions. And it's not like nobody ever caves to them. You could line up all kinds of people who blew it and caved in and threw up their hands and said, I don't believe anymore, or fell into temporary unbelief. Church history, it's happened. My Twitter profile picture is taken at a very significant spot in Oxford, England. At that spot, three pastors were martyred. In 1555, at the command of Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary, Pastor Hugh Latimer and Pastor Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake. There was a third pastor named Thomas Cranmer. He was not burned at the stake in that moment, but he was in prison and they made him watch the execution of his fellow pastors and it was brutal and it shook him at his core. Cranmer was the leading Protestant voice in Anglicanism at the time. He he, he wrote the Book of Common Prayer. He, He was the one that everyone in the country looked to for for spiritual leadership, and while he was in prison, after witnessing the execution of his friends, he caved. With the pressure of the authorities around him, he recanted his Protestant beliefs. He said, I don't believe in faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone anymore. And they used it as propaganda all over the country. They made him get up in front of crowds and recant his beliefs over and over and over. Can you imagine if someone like Billy Graham, D.A. Carson, John Piper, Tim Keller said, I don't believe in faith alone through grace alone, through Christ alone anymore. Imagine what that would do. Well, that's what was happening with Cranmer. However, on March 21st, 1556, Cranmer was in yet another public setting giving a recantation He had prepared a speech that they had approved, and he deviated from that script, and in that moment, under conviction of his recantation, he denounced his persecutors, denounced the queen, denounced the Catholic Church's teaching, and recanted of his recantations. They pulled him out of the pulpit, Dragged him out into the square, and at the spot I just showed you, immediately burnt him at the stake. And as the crowds watched, Cranmer, with regret and yet also gratitude that he had changed, said to the crowds, The hand that signed the recantation is the first to burn. And he put it into the fire. So, friends, it's not like nobody ever is caved. Hebrews 4 identifies that enduring to the end is something that every follower of Jesus has to consider. I mean, let's be honest. It's really easy to say, in this room. I'd never deny him. It's really easy to say, in this room, Christ is all I need. But the pressures of life, if we're honest, and the temptations around us can easily cause us to consider to renounce the very confession that we say that we believe. We can do that permanently, or we can do that temporarily as we fall into temptation. And yet, as you will see in a moment, the hope that is offered to us is directly tied to the incarnation of Jesus. So listen to me. So if you're here today, and you feel like you are barely hanging on, like you got up and you came to church by faith today. I mean like, not just driving by faith, I mean like you didn't even necessarily want to come today. I want you to know that in your clinging to your faith, God wants you to endure even more than you want to endure. There's no one in the universe more interested in your endurance than your heavenly father. If you're scared about your ability to make it one more year or one more day, you need to read on in this passage because God is so passionate about your endurance that He tells you about Jesus' ability to understand, even about Jesus' temptations, so that you will know when you're clinging and you think, I'm about ready to quit on you. This text comes in and says, Jesus understands, and he'll help you, because God wants you to endure. So that's the goal. That's the goal of this text. It's the goal of the incarnation. It's the goal that the writer of Hebrews is driving at. So then, how do we get there? What's the resource? The resource is the sympathy of Jesus. Look at verse 15. Notice the double negative. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So the word sympathize simply means the ability to share in the feelings or experiences of another. The New Living Translation renders this as understands. Interestingly, Hebrews 10.34 uses the same word to describe the compassion that these believers felt for those who were in prison. They felt compassion. They, they sympathized with them. So the focus of the word is on the emotional connection that one feels for another person. And for the, the people who were receiving this letter in the and roman context, this is, this is a worldview that was completely different than the traditional view of how God was. The Stoics believed that the primary attribute of God was his inability to feel anything, particularly his inability to feel the emotions of human beings. Because if God, in their thinking, felt the emotions of human beings, he could be controlled by them and that would make him not God. The Epicureans believed that God dwelt in the space between the worlds, completely detached from the emotions and the struggles of human beings. It's no wonder that the New Testament says that the Greeks thought the gospel was foolishness. That God would be concerned about you, that he would, he would understand what you feel, and what's more, that he would become like you in order to reach you? That just blew their minds. Jesus sympathizes, the text says, with our weaknesses. This word is a broad category. It means our incapacity or our limitations, but... That's not really even the whole picture. The word is intended to be somewhat vague, and that's, that's one of the reasons that if you look at ESV, New American Standard, NIV, New Living Translation, they all say weakness, and that rarely ever happens. And you know what that means? It means that nobody really knows what that word means, so they just left it right there. They did not want to touch it. They're like, no, weakness, 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 weakness. That is so rare in all those translations that they all would go with the same word. Because to mean that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. Means that he understands what it means to be human in a broken world. That he doesn't see our humanity and our struggle from afar, but rather he knows about it because he's in it. Because he's human. Because he's born of a child. Because he lived where we lived. Now, if the text just stopped there, that'd be helpful at one level, but there would be this nagging question, which is this: Well. But the thing that I deal with the most in life are temptations and difficulties. So how does Jesus sympathize with me in that? And then the text goes on even further, just driving at this very critical question. But, the text says, one who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. What in the world does that mean? Let's Start with what it cannot mean. And if you study one passage, you need to compare it with other passages in the Bible. It cannot mean that Jesus was tempted as a sinner because he wasn't a sinner. Nor can it mean that Jesus was tempted by virtue of his sin nature because he didn't have a sin nature. So he was fully human, but he was also fully God. He obeyed perfectly and he never sinned. He did not have a sin nature. So then the question is this, so was it possible for him to sin? I asked that question on social media this week and got a varied responses. It's actually not a fair question, which some of you commented on. Because it all relates to the word possible. If, if by possible, was it possible for Jesus to sin? If by possible we mean that Jesus had a human brain, he had the capacity to know what a temptation is, and the capacity to choose it, then yes, it is possible. But on the other hand, it's not possible for Jesus to sin because He is God, that there was no evil in him that could or would choose to sin. So in that respect, it was not possible. So possible can have different meanings. Now some of you immediately internally are having an internal hissy fit. you're protesting. <laughs> you're having a theological hissy fit, which sounds like this. Well, if he didn't have a sin nature, and if he couldn't as, if he could not have sinned as God then... How can he understand? Great question. And in that question, I'm gonna punt. <laughs> no, to a really good catcher, or I'm gonna hand the ball off to C.S. Lewis. Varsity runner, here we go, here it he goes. Here's his answer. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That is an obvious lie. Only those who resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And that is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the full, to the full, what temptation means. Is that helpful? It better be. Because that's all I got. (laughs) But I got C.S. Lewis. I have a little more. We ought not to assume, friends, that sinlessness or the absence of a sin nature makes the temptation any less real or potent. In fact, it seems that Jesus understands the weight and the pressures of trials and the weight and the pressures of temptations at a level that we don't even fully understand. The fact that he was fully God does not mean he had a leg up on winning against temptations. In fact, I would argue he had additional temptations. For instance, when Jesus is tempted by the devil to make bread when he's hungry... Jesus not only has to deal with his own struggles and his own temptations, but he actually has the capacity to create bread. I don't have that capacity. I may struggle with wanting to steal food, but I can't make food. For instance, have you ever wanted to be able to prove it to somebody, like right on the spot? Somebody questions you and you're like, well, I could prove it to you, but you can't immediately. I was traveling with Tim Whitney um, last week, and we, we landed us at a spot that I was doing some uh, speaking at, and um, we got there. He looked at the schedule. He said, "Mark, do you know you're speaking on Friday?" We got there Wednesday night, and I said, "Yeah, that's what I told you." He goes, "No, you didn't tell me that." I said, "Yeah, I did. I told you it was going to be on Friday." He goes, I, "All right." And as a you know good, respectful young man, he backed off and he got online, looked on email, right? <laughs> and he's sitting on the edge of the bed. He says, "Hey, man, I, I, I love you, but..." here's your email and I looked at it and I was like oh man come on man said, well it doesn't matter you stuck with me so you can't leave. so he was stuck with me but the fact of the matter is he could pull up the email show me that no I was wrong and I thought you know what it'd be awesome if we could do that every single time have an argument with my wife about something and boom I could tell her right then see how wrong you are right <laughs> or imagine Jesus Pharisees are getting in his grill and he could call 10,000 angels and wipe them out right then and there. I don't have that ability. Jesus has the possibility of that reality, and yet he chooses not to engage his divinity to rescue himself from real human temptations. Friends, do you feel the weight of that? So who knows how to hold 150 pounds? Who, Who knows 150 pounds is heavy? A guy who holds it for five minutes or a guy who holds it for 30 minutes? Therefore, you never need to wonder if Jesus understands or if he knows what it's like to be a man who's wrestling through trial and temptation, Jesus understands. And friends, he understands probably better than you and I even understand. The goal is endurance. The resource is his sympathy. Finally, here's the divine help. Now that we understand all of this, now we understand that endurance is the goal. Now we understand that sympathy is our resource. Now you understand a little bit about Jesus' ability to understand. Here we find that the incarnation makes everything possible that we're talking about. Without the advent, you don't get verse 16. Verse 16 says this. I love this verse. Let Us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, this this passage is loaded. Why does the incarnation matter? Why does it matter that Jesus was born as a baby? It's important because we have this sympathetic savior who helps you endure, and how does he help you endure? By giving you confidence that he will help you. And so because of the sympathy of Jesus, because God wants you to endure no matter what you're walking through, because He is identified with our temptations, and because of his role as our great high priest, he then offers us three things. Number one, he says, draw near with confidence. The text says to come to the throne of grace And we're to come to the throne of grace with confidence. The idea is simply that we can come before the throne of God. We can come before his presence without fear. And instead of being afraid of him, we come with boldness. And the invitation is for us to pour out our hearts before the Lord with a level of of assurance. We're we're invited to come before him with our burdens, with our fears, and with our struggles. We're We're invited to lay our burdens and our needs and our challenges before him. Some of you are so weary, you're so discouraged, that what you have done is you have stopped coming. You don't talk to them anymore about the burden that's going on in your soul. You don't talk to them about the challenges that are running through your life anymore. You've just stopped. And the offering in this passage is simply this, why don't you come? Why don't you come in your brokenness? Why don't you come in your tears? Why don't you come with all your fears? Why don't you come with all of the things that make you nervous? Why don't you come with your unbelief? You think your unbelief's a mystery to God? You think when you say to him, I'm coming to you, but I don't believe, you think God doesn't know that? You think it scares him? Think he's nervous about it? God is more interested in your endurance than you are. He's able to help and sustain your life for the rest of all of eternity and he invites you as a part of the process of helping you endure to open up the floodgates of heaven and say, I know the cancer is real. I know that son's walking away. I know the struggles with your finances. I know your infertility. I know the thing with your past. I know, I know, I know. So come, 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 come. Don't stop coming. That's the point. And Jesus bought the right for you to come. So why would you not come? We're invited to lay our petitions before the sovereign king of the universe who intercedes for you in a way that you don't understand. Who paid for your access so that you can get on your knees and say, God, I'm here, I'm weak, I'm broken, but I am here. And the reason that I'm here is because you told me to come here. You told me to pray. You told me to seek you. You told me to come with confidence. And my confidence is not in me. My confidence is not in my ability to make it to the end. My confidence is not in my ability to pray the right prayer. My confidence is not in my ability to have the right emotions or think the right thoughts. My confidence is in the fact that your word says, come. And Jesus paid the pathway for me to come. And so here I am once again in faith saying, I'm coming because you've called me to come. For some of you, that's the whole reason that you're here today. Because unbelief is so grab the hold of your mouth that it's your hold of your heart rather that it's closed your mouth, and it's a sign of what's really going on inside of your soul, and you need to reopen your mouth so your heart will be reopened and say, in effect, God, I'm coming again, even though I'm scared nothing's gonna change. You come with confidence to receive mercy. Receive mercy. Well, this fits exactly with the Old Testament paradigm of a high priest. We have an atonement that creates mercy. So we, we come boldly to the throne because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's why today if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've run into a wall, I just want to... Th- you know that wall. God put that wall in your life to make you realize, brother or sister, you are you are messing up your own life. You're tearing out your own house. You're blowing up your own life. And it maybe the whole reason you're here today is to realize that God has a particular message from you in for you in His Word, which is simply this: you can't mess, you can't fix your own life. Jesus can though. He can help you. And what you need is you need mercy. What kind of mercy is offered to people who put their faith in Christ? This kind of mercy. The mercy that God is for you and not against you. The mercy that we have been invited to lay our burdens before the Lord. The mercy that God loves you and is concerned for you. That you have been forgiven and have a standing before him as his child. That you're approaching the sovereign God of the universe who with one simple act can change everything. And we come with confidence, not in what God owes us, but instead in what Jesus has done and what God has said. For some of you, you need to take your unbelieving heart and remind it, heart, we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible and the Bible says, come. So we're coming because I believe help my unbelief third text says that we receive grace to help in time of need Mm. do you know what this is this kind of grace is God's empowering ability to do his will it means his enabling you to follow him that you receive what you need in order that you might endure. That he, he pours out enough grace on you to deal with the troubles that you face, to deliver you from your temptations, and to help you follow him one more day. The Bible promises that there's never... There's never so many trials or so many struggles that you run out of God's grace. It may feel like that. You may feel like you've gotten just to the edge, and yet you've expended all of God's grace. You go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, grace bucket all new again and ready to roll, and God gives you grace after grace after grace after grace. You see, some of you, the problem is you're trying to grab a hold of Monday and Tuesday's grace when you're living in Sunday. You're trying to grab next year's grace when you've got to live in God's grace right today, and living in God's grace today means that you have to you have belief and faith that God's in control of your life. You're not in control of your life. And so what do you do in the midst of that? You know what you do instead? You come. And you say to him, I can't do this unless you help me. And I don't even know if I can do tomorrow unless you help me. I can't resist this temptation. Another week, another month, another year. I'm crying out loud. I don't know if I can do this the rest of my life. Be a faithful husband and father. Be a godly woman be a moral teenager be a single whose passion is set on christ how am i going to do this the answer is you go one day at a time pouring out grace pouring out grace pouring out grace some of you you're in the middle of a fight with cancer and you think how in the world can i do this Can i die well can i make it through chemo you got a son or a daughter who are wayward you think how can i they come in like to christmas what do i say What do I say to him? How do I share the gospel? I don't wanna mess it up, I don't wanna make it worse, but I need to speak the gospel. What do I say? And what you need to know is that God can give you the grace. That's what this text says, that you may come and find grace to help in time of need. The idea is you come, you come boldly, you come confidently, you receive God's mercy, and you receive divine enablement such that your mouth opens, you say something, and you're like, what? That was God's grace? And you open your mouth and it goes poorly? And you think, that was God's grace. Because apparently he wanted it to go poorly. (laughs) To be able to surface the problems that are going on. You see, listen, God wants you to be able to hold fast to your confession until your very last breath. He wants you to keep fighting temptation, to keep trusting him in your sadness, to keep praying when you're in pain, and to sing when you feel sad. Because following Jesus in a broken world with broken hearts with broken people is very, very hard, and this is why Christmas can be so painful for so many of us. All the singing, all the merriment—while it's understandable at one level, it can be extremely painful. How do you seek joy in the world when it feels like your world is falling apart? But the coming of Christ was for this very reason. He came into our world. He entered the mess of our lives and redeemed us. And it is His promise to help us. The question is not whether the Bible promises he'll help us. The question is whether or not you believe the promise. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to him. The devil cannot have you. Jesus bought you. Your life belongs to him. And listen to me, Because Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, he will hold you fast. He'll hold you fast through cancer. He'll hold you fast through wayward children. He'll hold you fast through infertility. He'll hold you fast through a job situation that isn't what you would hope. He'll hold you fast through a bad marriage. He'll hold you fast through temptation. He will hold you fast. Jesus came into the world so that when we are tempted, we can run to him we can say this feels so attractive and my heart wants to go there. Help me to see this for what it is. Help me to turn and help me to value you more than what I want in that thing or that person. Your temptations do not have to have another victory over you. Your sins do not have to define you. And your hope for your future rests not in you or your ability to make it all the way to the end. Your hope for your future rests in him because he will hold you fast. So if you are fearful or lonely or depressed or you feel like giving in, here's my invitation to you. Why don't you just simply obey the Bible and come to him? Why don't you just come? Why don't you just come and say, you told me I could draw near, so I am am drawing near. And you said, I'm going to receive mercy. I'm going to believe the only reason I'm here is because of Christ, and I'm going to believe that you are going to give me grace, that you will hold me fast. And when you come and unbelief still is a part of your life, you still come because God knows about your unbelief. And even in your partial believing heart, Jesus still holds you fast. A sympathetic savior helps you endure because Jesus came. To help you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to believe the Bible right now. Help us not to believe what our emotions say or what the world says, what the enemy would say. Help us to believe what you say and give us grace to come, to come to come not just in this moment, but to come tomorrow morning and in the days and weeks to come and to be reminded that you came so we could come. Give us grace to believe that you can hold us fast. We pray this in the name of our great high priest, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.